Hello and welcome to the second installment of the Gravescast. We've made it to the second episode. Uh, my name is Nick Graves and I am the host of the Gravescast. And today we have on Mr. Uh, Chung Chubbs Yu, famous for being an electrical engineer in training, uh, chess enthusiast, and my personal pool hustling and karaoke partner. How are you doing today, Chung? Hey, what's good? All those things you say makes me sound so uh, accomplished. <laughs> hey, we're all accomplished in our own ways. So today we're going to be talking about a few different things. Uh, one of the biggest things that we're going to be talking about is actually the Queen's Gambit, uh, a Netflix show that got released kind of a few months ago. Uh, really hit its stride. A lot of people love the series. Uh, people say it might be one of the best things that's come out in, I believe, 2020. And it's pretty critically acclaimed. So Chung uh, basically watched it, I think, probably around where it, when it came out. Right, Chung? Uh, yeah, I was, I'd say I'm a, I was a little bit late to the party. Uh, I kind of watched it when like all the hype kind of washed over. But still like i think it's still a great show like i would consider rewatching it yeah honestly and i mean seven episodes you really don't have much of an excuse it's not really a long watch kind of gives you the meat of the story and not really a lot of filler uh kind of one of those single story type things and honestly kind of one of the series that i like as well so i basically uh watched it this week and we're gonna uh give it a little bit of a talking about and kind of our own little personal review of it so I guess we should yeah, kind of start spoilers. out. <laughs> I guess we should uh, start out with uh, what we liked about it. Would you kind of like to take it away? Kind of give your overall impression, and then kind of touch on a couple of the good parts. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I was actually able to binge watch it all in one weekend, and uh, yeah, so it's definitely a very consumable amount. It's like a mini series that they have on Netflix. Uh, but yeah, I think it was it was really. Uh, well made like the production values i'd say it was like very high the cinematography was uh like really professional uh it was really engaging uh they also set the scene like really well in my opinion it was set in i think like the 1950s somewhere around there in the states and uh they had like all the all like the music wardrobe uh it really made it immersive and I think that's, like that's uh, one of the things that's that makes it engaging. It's kind of like you're diving into this world that we're not really used to. Yeah, kind. Of, it's uh, I believe it's classified as a period drama, and I agree with you. I'm I'm personally a huge fan of miniseries. I mean, it depends on the show, but I think it really works well because you get the meat of the story. Uh, they time lapse, so you're not getting any of the filler, and it's just solid overall. Uh, I really like the plot, uh, kind of the time-lapse aspect of it. You get kind of, you know, the beginning aspect where, you know, she starts out with, uh, you know, learning chess just at, what, age nine or something? Yeah, it was, she was really young. And then it kind uh, of yeah, nine. brings you through the rest of her life. And one of the things I always like about series like this, it, maybe not, it's, I don't think it's kind of uh, characteristic of all miniseries, uh, certainly not, but I always love how they start out with a scene from later on, and then you kind of see how they get there. Because I believe the first scene was 
maybe the end of the sixth episode. There's about seven episodes, I believe, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, I thought it was very interesting to kind of see the take on uh, self-destruction almost. And you, you described it in a different way, kind of the uh, destructive quality of genius, I think you said. Yeah, so, like, I was, uh, like, after watching, after binge-watching the series, I kind of went, uh, dug deeper, more about the the show. So I went into, like, behind-the-scenes videos and whatever else they had about the show. And the director described uh, the series really well. He said it was, it wasn't, it was kind of cheesy. <laughs> but he said, uh, he said, the show isn't about chess. It's about the cost of genius. And although it's cheesy, like, it's a pretty good way of putting it. Because you see uh, the main character, Beth Harmon, you see her, uh, although she's, like, very gifted, she has this amazing talent in chess, you see she still struggles through life, especially, like, with her relationships, with her mental health, uh, especially uh, drug addiction and her alcoholism. So, yeah, it's really interesting take it's like um it almost begs the question like if you had the opportunity if you had the chance to be this prodigy to be uh this exceptional person in this one area but you had to sacrifice like i guess your sanity and that your relationships like is it worth it I mean, it's it's an interesting question, that's for sure. And I mean, you, you do have a lot of uh, past examples. I mean, you take like a author like Hemingway. He was an alcoholic, and I believe they've done some uh, psych studies on early authors like that. And they found that sometimes mental illness is a kind of a jumpstart for creativity, just kind of the addiction aspect of it and stuff like that. Like if you look at someone like Stephen King, he, uh, I believe he had quite a few different uh, addictions, ranging from cigarettes to alcohol to, I think he even had uh, cocaine addiction. I recall reading about how one of his uh, books, I forget which one, but it was really just a metaphor for his own cocaine addiction. And of course, that was it, when he went back and reflected on it, he saw that and he also kind of saw that it was actually at the peak of his addiction there. So it can create... Oh, even even though like the sanity takes a hit, it still can create uh, beautiful pieces. I suppose not to say that it's worth it in <laughs> any stretch of the imagination, but mm-hmm. I think uh, Queen's Gambit took it in an interesting direction. I feel like the aspect of self destruction was almost it was kind of a double edged sword, at least in my opinion. I think it was one of the one of the peaks of the show, but also I feel like it wasn't handled as well as it could be and that might be because of the limited time that they had to uh show it i mean seven episodes right but i don't know how you felt but i almost in a way i felt maybe it wasn't glamorizing the addiction but it didn't show too much of an impact in my opinion like you obviously saw she was in there you know Dancing around her room, like her uh, her ha- the house that she owned was getting destroyed in the process. She was kind of losing out on some of her relationships. I believe uh, it was one of the biggest ones was with uh, Harry, right? Like she yeah, kind yeah. of talked back to him, and he was trying to help her, but 
obviously, you know, when you're addicted to something, it really has to come from you. You can, it's great to have support around you, but ultimately the change has to be done through you. But I felt like it didn't really encapsulate kind of the really like dark struggles of addiction. And the one big thing that I really picked up on was they didn't really touch too much, at least in my opinion, on the recovery aspect of it. Because you, sh- you, they showed her kind of delving into the addiction. You saw her, you know, trying beer for the first time, hanging out with college kids, trying weed, and kind of the tranquilizer aspect from when she was nine years old. And they did touch on a bit of it. Like I, I recall one line where I think it was uh, Jolene. She was like, "Oh yeah, honey, you're going through uh, some withdrawal symptoms right now." So they did touch on that a little bit, but I felt like she just went from rock bottom to just fine. When you're addicted to something like alcohol, it can kill you. You you get cold sweats. You sit there. You might have uh, delirium tremens, which is kind of like hallucinations and stuff like that. And you didn't see any of that. It just kind of went from rock bottom to, hey, we're okay again. And I really wish they kind of showed a little more of that struggle. I don't know how you kind of felt about that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up. Uh I guess you're right. They could have gone more into like how she recovered, but again, like you said, uh, there probably wasn't as much time to fit that in, just because it was a miniseries, and they and it obviously wasn't uh, the main plot, right? Like the main plot was uh, her chess career, so it was kind of on the side. But uh, I would argue, like she was, uh, she was definitely like at rock bottom. She was definitely struggling, right? Like, I think they made that part obvious. Okay. It definitely wasn't uh, glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, yeah, kind of unsettling, to be honest. But what really uh, got her out of it, I think, was her friend Jolene uh, reconnecting with her, right? I think that's uh, it's a great point that they made that... Uh, someone was able to help pull her out of that hole yeah kind of like the wake-up call almost i think it was yeah Mm-hmm. so yeah no i i think they did that well in a way um it certainly kind of was like you, you know you saw harry try and go and take her out of the uh, rock bottom but it didn't really work out but when it came to jolene i guess you know seeing that culture shock of I I really think it was the example of, you know, Henry, or not Henry, sorry, Harry was around for quite a bit in her life. Like, it wasn't just early life. It was, you know, kind of progressive. Like, she spent a lot of time with him. So, to go back and kind of see someone who is in a similar situation to her, just with the uh, kind of missing, not missing parents, but just growing up in the orphanage type thing, and then seeing how both of them uh, almost moved on in a way, and just in different paths. Because she, you know, continued with her chess career. She got really good. She kind of lived the glamorous lifestyle. Traveling, playing chess uh, for a career and stuff like that. Meeting new people, seeing new places. And then you kind of see Jolene, how she kind of took more of a standard life, I suppose. She got a scholarship. She went to, uh, she did, I think, pre-law, I believe. And then she got a job at a firm. So I think seeing how both of them evolved from that state where... You know, 
they were in a similar situation. They both, you know, were subjected to the tranquilizer pills, but one, you know, being Beth Harmon, fell into that trap, whereas Jolene kind of rose above, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah, you're right. Like, uh, Beth was definitely, she grew a dependency on those pills, right? Because they made her so good at chess. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that begs the question, right? Like, in your case, do you do you think that to achieve, I mean, we, we found out, I guess, by the end that really it wasn't necessary for her. But if you, if you have that idea that you need to subject yourself to something like this as a way to boost yourself, is it worth it to achieve heights like that? Like she, you know, beat a grandmaster in the end. She, you know, she, she didn't, it didn't seem like she struggled too much when it came to her chess career. Like she was, she was naturally gifted. She put in the work and in the end, she didn't really lose too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. I'd say that's actually like one of the things I didn't, uh, maybe I like, I disliked about the show. Like I think around the second or third episode, uh, she got adult adopted, right? And, uh, she entered into the Kentucky state, uh, championship tournament. And, uh, <laughs> she basically like wiped the floor with everyone there having like not played chess against an actual opponent for years. If I'm correct, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. because she didn't, uh, the last time she played chess was what with Mr. Scheibel at the orphanage. Yep. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know when when I was watching uh, that scene where like she was just like winning game after game during that tournament. I found it kind of, uh, I guess, unrealistic that she's that good. <laughs> but I guess that's the premise of the whole show. So maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong there. I don't know. I mean, just from personal experience, I don't know. Really, if you've gone into like any type of competitive scene, but I used to play uh, competitive Smash Bros. before my hands gave out. And there's one weekly that really kind of uh, made me think of something like that. Uh, there's this one guy came by. He wasn't su he wasn't super good like to Beth Harmon's level, but he came by. I was pretty established in the scene. Like I was a contender for top eight at pretty much every. Uh, Maybe not top eight, but I, I was a solid player in the scene. And this guy comes by. He just ends up beating me, like, the first time we ever play. And it ended up being throughout the next year, maybe two years, I never actually took a set off him. He always beat me. It was, I think the score was, like, 13-0 by the end of it. Holy and <laughs> Yeah, he ended up becoming top 10 in Ontario at that point. So wow. I, I don't think it's too far-fetched. I actually really like the idea of it kind of shows her place in the chess world because she was naturally gifted. Uh, she really had a sense for it and everything. And obviously, you know, you had that uh, mental practice and everything. And just to show that, like, this is where she stands, you know, she sat there and won the tournament coming out of nowhere, right? And I mm -hmm. think that's important. I think it kind of shows kind of like a Rocky type story. Where Rocky came in, you know, he trained up and he got very far in uh, the competition, but he lost to Apollo Creed at the end. And so I feel like that kind of ties into Beth Harmon, where she went and she ended up losing to, uh, gosh, what was the what was the Cowboys kid na kid's name? 
Benny Watts. <laughs> yep, Benny Watts. <laughs> Gotta say, weird attire. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting. But apparently, uh, this is like a tangent that's off topic, but uh, like there's some interesting, uh, like the cast was pretty interesting for this show. The actor for Benny Watts, he was uh, the voice of Ferb in Phineas and Ferb. I don't know if you <laughs> watched Really? Yeah, I know, right? It's like <laughs> kind of unexpected. It's it's so yeah it's it's so weird when you see stuff like that because I mean you have I don't know if you've ever seen those photos on Instagram or if anyone uh, in the audience have seen them but the voice actors from when you're a kid there's like one voice actor for every character like the person who voices uh, Timmy Turner and the Fairly Odd Parents also voiced like uh, I think it was like SpongeBob um, maybe someone from uh, or some other big tv show i think there's one in phineas and ferb as well like there's like eight to ten different characters that that person voiced and Mm -hmm. can really relate to most people in their childhood at least from our time right yeah with the with cartoons and stuff being pretty popular yeah oh yeah and i mean i don't know i I think another thing that the show did really good was this was something i read mind you and I, i did agree with it uh, the Soviet the Soviet representation. I mean, throughout the series, and I'm, I'm sure this was intended. There really wasn't much of an enemy, right? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could I mean, you like elaborate? I mean, when you when you sit there and you see someone like Borgov, it wasn't mm-hmm. a case of you know like kind of the hero story where it's you know beth Harmon versus borgov like obviously there's a rivalry there but it wasn't like you know it wasn't super emphasized in in a way that was like you know this is the enemy this is the hero there's just a lot of good sportsmanship i mean by the end when she eventually did take him out they ended with a hug it wasn't like a bitter rivalry or, or like America versus the Soviets. I mean, it was emphasized in the political structure, but Beth Harmon didn't really see them as enemies. Whereas I feel like a lot of shows that kind of have that uh, like sport sports type shows where you know you see like oh we we got to beat that team you know this team is the enemy we got to rise above them type thing. You didn't see that in Queen's Gambit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, one of the great things about Beth's character is like. She wasn't really on board with, I guess, all, like, the politics and, like, the stigma. Like, there was um, there was stuff about, yeah, like, oh, it's uh, America versus uh, the Soviet Union. It's capitalism versus communism. <laughs> like, yeah, she didn't really buy into that stuff. She was like, I'm just here to play chess. And it's also, um, they touched on it, I guess, for, like, throughout the whole show. Like, the fact that she is... A girl she's a woman that's in this in the chess scene which is like heavily heavily dominated by men and like this really just i'm pretty sure in the 50s in that time period there it just wasn't heard of like of a famous uh high level uh woman chess player so yeah that's really and she was even asked about it like uh by uh, one of the news reporters that she was asked like what's it like being among all those men and she just i don't know (laughs) she's like i i don't care like i didn't really notice i'm just here to play chess and yeah i think that's one of the great things about that's character yeah i think it's it's really respectable because i mean a lot of people 
don't get me wrong, there are people who, you know, just love the game in regards to chess, in regards to any type of uh, competitive scene. And then you have others who are, you know, focused more on the money, others who are focused more on kind of the politics around it, and hers was just really a surefire uh, love for the game, right? So, mm-hmm. I, Yeah, definitely. I feel like I, I, I love seeing that. Obviously, I feel like, you know, I, I love seeing people, you know, clamor about the politics and stuff like that so not not politics but just you know everything else surrounding the game i mean that gets a lot of entertainment as well um but no i i loved her kind of just straight up like kind of um unconditional love i think it's probably the best way of phrasing it and yeah, i love sorry go ahead uh yeah i was just saying like yeah it's a good point you can even see uh in the very last scene uh, this is like heavy spoilers. In the last <laughs> scene of the show, when uh, she uh, defeated Borgov, she was declared the number one world champion. And uh, she was, uh, I guess, driving to the airport, right? To yep. fly back home. She just like <laughs> walked out of the car <laughs> and she just went for a walk. And uh, she started playing chess with uh, people on the street, like, uh, not homeless people, but <laughs> like there were just chessboards set up right on the street, and yeah, she like she was playing. You could tell she was playing for the love of the game. Like obviously, there weren't any uh, media covering this like uh, <laughs> these chess games on the street. So yeah, she definitely just was playing for herself and for the love of the game. At the end, yeah. Now I, I do have to ask, how did you feel about the ending? Just the ending not just being, you know, when she walked up to uh, the chess players in the street, but overall kind of, I'd say the last half half of the episode, like right before she went to uh, the USSR and then onward. Did you feel like it was kind of cliche or did you enjoy kind of that feel good, like, you know, rise to the top, she finally beat uh, Borgov after losing twice? Um, I think it was... It was kind of a nice moment. Uh, it was really uh, cool to see, um, to have uh, like Benny Watts and Harry, I forget his last name, and like all those people uh, that she met and uh, played chess with, like all those people like kind of coming together and helping her uh, win the game against Borgov. I think that was, like, I think it was a nice moment. I'm, I guess I'm a sucker for those kinds of uh those kinds of moments in movies but i think it was uh yeah it was definitely a feel-good moment (laughs) i think that might be where we differ then because honestly i wasn't a huge fan of that ending i thought it would have been a lot better because before i saw the episode the description said something along the lines of she finally uh understands what matters to her something along the lines of that priorities whatever but the whole point is is i felt like that wasn't in her character, I suppose. I mean, she she did enough in regards to, you know what, I'm not going to go preach the uh, Christian mission to, you know, the people in the USSR. I'm not going to sit there and go to the White House to, you know, speak on, you know, our victory or whatever. So I think there was enough character development that way. But I almost would have found the ending to be a bit better if maybe she didn't even attend her game of Borgov. Like, if it was the type of thing where... You know, she got to the championships and then she realized, like, you know what? I, I just love the game. I don't I don't really need the fame. I don't need the fortune. I just want to play. And maybe if she, like, stood up 
left the scene and went outside to go play with those outside. That, in my opinion, might have been a better ending. Mind you, it's different. It's not, it's not the feel-good that everyone loves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. But I think, like, they were just, like, plot-wise, they were just leading up, uh, like, a lot towards that final game with Morgoth. So <laughs> just, I think just getting up and walking out, I don't know if that would have, uh, I guess, been, like, a satisfying ending to, to some people. You know what? I think this might... I don't know. Have you ever seen uh, Blue Mountain State before? Uh, I've seen, like, the first episode, but yeah. nothing else. What, the uh, cookie run? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember that part. Like The last time I watched it was, like, years ago. Either way, the way the, uh, the, way the season ends, or actually the series ends, at least before they came back and made a not-so-good movie, Rise of Thadland just really bit the dust. Uh, but anyways, it, it kind of ends off where they uh, were kicked off. They weren't able to play their championship game. And so they're all disappointed about it. So they set up a kind of an exhibition game in a cornfield. And they sit there and they just play against the rival team. Not for the trophy, not for the fame, not for the prestige. Just so the idea of, you know what, let's play our game out. Let's see who the better team is. I feel like that might have even been a better way. If she didn't go to the USSR, but maybe like later down the road, she came back and she just, I don't know, took on Borgov somewhere. Like maybe Borgov's just sitting there chilling at a bar or something. Beth comes in and Beth's like, you know what? I need to resolve this. We need to do one final game or something. And then you kind of take the fame out of it. You take the prestige. And then in the end, it's all about the love of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So, like uh, you're, you're saying uh, just like uh screw all like the bells and whistles just just play the game just because it's fun <laughs> yeah pretty much i just i, I kind of felt like that might have been in her character a little more um and then kind of outside of that i think my only other gripe with the series is mind you i am a very casual chess player i don't know what it means to go knight's pawn this way or whatever I, I have no idea what that means. Maybe you have a better sense of it, but I almost, you, you say, I, I know you said before, it's about chess. And I mean, the director argues that and says, no, it's about, you know, genius leading self-destruction. But all in all, I feel like it, for the casual viewer, I don't really know if there's a good frame of understanding. Like if you take any other movie, like you take a movie about football you can generally easy, easily follow that. You take The Color of Money, a pool movie of Tom Cruise. The viewer, you, you don't need to know anything about pool. You just need to know, you know, these balls go into a pocket. That's all it's about. But when they were talking about different chess strategies, not, not when they're saying, like, you know, you need to use the Sicilian or whatever, anything like that, but just when you're actually seeing the boards and stuff, I feel like it wasn't easy to follow. If, I, um, hmm, I think I kind of have to disagree, I guess. Really? I feel like, um, I mean, I think they did a good job of framing uh, in terms of, like, you didn't have to be a chess player to follow what was happening, like, what emotions the characters were feeling. Uh, but they also included, like, those shots of the board for those, for those chess enthusiasts to kind of uh, really understand like what's going on, I guess. But 
Yeah, no, I would have to disagree. I think like it's still very enjoyable. Uh, you don't and you don't need to know. You don't have to be a chess player. You don't need to know all the ins and outs of the game. I don't. I don't think you need to know the ins and outs. But really, every shot that they did of like the chessboard or the screen that was showing the chess moves, they were only on screen for a few seconds. Like, did you get a sense of okay, this is what she's going for. This is the strategy. Oh shit! You know, this is how it's progressing. This is how the end game is going to go. Did you really pick up on anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'd say I did. I mean, like, I can't really analyze. I'm not one of those people who can analyze <laughs> a chessboard like just <laughs> at a glance. Uh, like maybe if you're that good, you definitely like understand like what the stakes are. Like, is she winning? Is she not? But I think. They did a good job uh, conveying that, even if you didn't know what was happening on the chessboard. Like, you could... Uh, they had a lot of shots of the characters' uh, facial expressions. Uh, you had uh, the audience, like, maybe, uh, like, gasping, or I think one one guy uh, said shit or something. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I forget his name, but he was like... Uh, friends with Beth Harmon, and uh, it was the game against Borgov. And, like, he Borgov played some unexpected move that they didn't plan out. He's like, shit. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I no, I think, I think they did a good job. Like, I have to disagree with you on that. I think they did a good job conveying the stakes and the uh, emotions of the game, even if you don't, you aren't a chess enthusiast. I, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I think all you're saying is that anyone can get into the hype of it. I mean, you can sit there like, fuck, for my for my orientation week at school, I, I for, for everyone out there, I'm not a fan of football whatsoever. But you go out, you kind of get into the spirit, you, you know what happens. And I mean, it's, it's all about you versus a rival school. So you can get into the hype moments of that. You can look on the board and see, oh, shoot, our school's down by you know 10 points or whatever. We need to make the comeback. But when you see the board in the chess gambit, or not the chess gambit, <laughs> when you see the board in the queen's gambit, it's like you don't, I feel like you don't get a sense of, oh, no, you know, Beth is like two moves away from getting checkmated. Like you can obviously get into the hype as you're saying when it comes to, oh, you see the gaps. Oh, you see how she's like not very confident. You can tell she's in a bad position. But I feel like for most people, you can't see that she's in a bad position through the board itself. You, you rely on the facial cues. You rely on what the commentator's saying. I, I, I just don't like, I play it casually, of course. And I mean, hey, you know what? You're you're a whole lot better than me, you know, Mr. Chess Enthusiast. You, you taught me Queen's Gambit, or not the Queen's Gambit. You taught me the Botez Gambit. So you know your the stuff. Botez Gambit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I did I did teach you that. <laughs> but um, no, like, I think the, the, the series did the best that it could with uh, conveying what was happening. Like, like, obviously, I don't think they're in a position where... They could teach the <laughs> audience, like, <laughs> like, oh, is this uh, are they, is Beth in a good position or not? Like, just from the board, like, I think they did well with what they had. Yeah, I'll give you that. I th I think you definitely have a point there. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, overall, I just I, I thought it was a solid show. Um, I, I'm not gonna lie, I did tear up a little bit when it was like, oh yeah, Mr. Scheibel died and. 
she goes down oh, she looks at his board and it's no and actually i actually really love that scene <laughs> it's it's so heartwarming it's i mean it really shows you that you know you, you have people who are just straight up supportive like you have someone like jolene who you know will will show her support just uh, verbally whereas someone like mm-hmm. mr scheibel he seemed like a jackass when you first met him it's like yeah no i'm not teaching you that nope we're not playing anymore and then you just you, you kind of see how he internally feels through you know collecting all the newspaper clippings, keeping the photo of them. Like you could really yeah, see the love man. he had for her. Yeah, like oh, they did a really good job like filming that. Like yeah. I had nostalgia for like something I had just watched like <laughs> what like <laughs> a few episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's such a good scene because like. Uh, Beth having been like, uh, I guess uh, was she an orphan? I don't know, but like having yeah, been Beth was an orphan. Kind of all, no, but I'm pretty sure her dad was still around. Like he wasn't around for her, but like he was still alive, right? Yeah, just okay. un- unbeknownst to her, unbeknownst. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so for the majority of like Beth's life, she was kind of alone. Yep, and uh, you, like. The friends she made along the way, she was always, <laughs> it was always uh, an opponent, like, at first, right? Like, Harry was, uh, uh, like, the final opponent for winning the state championship, and Benny was uh, the final opponent for being the, I think, the U.S. champion or something like that. Yeah, something but, like uh, that. Yeah, so it's kind of, like, it's kind of, uh, I guess she felt kind of lonely. You get that kind of vibe throughout her life. Well, it, and it, uh, it's just nice seeing uh, Mr. Scheibel was has always been supporting her, even though she didn't know it. Yeah, no, I think you're right on that. I think what really led to that was the way her mom taught her, right? Because she was like, "Oh yeah, you know, boys will always try and teach you something. You know, you know, make make themselves seem important, make them think that they're helping you." And then she said, "You know, well, you know what? You're here for yourself. You know." humor them do what you want but in the end you're on your own and you need to learn how to you know be on your own right Mm -hmm. and then you almost see the clash that her mother has with her own morals and ideals because in the flashback scene you saw that she went back to the father five years later and said you know what i was wrong i shouldn't have you know stayed out on my own i should have gone back with you or whatever and i mean you know what a little bit heartbreaking that you see you know that the mother was uh, the mother obviously was trying to commit suicide and found no other way out of her life out of her own situation and decided that the best place for beth was with her and i guess whatever afterlife she believed in i'm not gonna lie i don't think it had as much emotional impact as it could have and that kind of leads to my opinion about the whole no real uh kind of description of the recovery because along with the drug addiction and everything she struggled with mr scheibel's death she struggled with uh, having that flashback of her mom essentially trying to take her out with her. And it just, it, it didn't seem like it affected her that much. It was just kind of like, oh, hey, cool. My mother uh, tried to end her life and take me with her. Uh, yeah, that's cool. All right, let's go play chess. Like, they never really addressed that point too much. Hmm. Well, I mean, that happened when she was pretty young. Like, you just don't process things. The same way you do as an adult, I think. I think that's what it comes down to. I guess you you do have a point. Like she didn't really come to terms with it when she was an adult. 
But I don't know. That's an interesting point. I just think, you know what, they should have tried to address that a little more. I can certainly respect what they're trying to do, but I felt like maybe maybe another another episode or just kind of, yeah, honestly, I think another episode might have done it because then you can kind of dedicate that whole episode to the recovery. You go through, like, you know, the hallucinations, the cold sweats, everything, and then you find you're kind of at peace at the end, and then you jump into that final episode. I feel like there's just a little too much of a jump between where you had her lose to Borgoff after her wild night out and then uh, the final episode, right? Oh, really? Was that? I mean, it's been a while since I watched the series, but is that was it really just the next episode? It was. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Uh, no, I, I agree with you there. Okay. Maybe like, yeah, one more episode in between to really show her uh, really like overcoming uh those challenges from being from rock bottom yeah so i think really that's one of the only things i would change overall i I think they did a really good job on the show um yeah it it was a solid watch don't get me wrong i i i I think it's a little overhyped i don't think it's uh this like masterpiece or whatever i just think it's a solid show and i don't feel like enough people give enough attention to those miniseries type shows I mean, you look at stuff like Haunting of Hill House or You, and those are fantastic stories as well, and they're all self-contained. So, I don't know. I think people just need to explore those a little more, and they would find that most of these miniseries are fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Any kind of uh, closing thoughts on the Queen's Gambit, or are you good? Oh, man, I I wish Beth at least returned her five bucks to Mr. Shiloh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was supposed to be 10 oh was it 10 bucks because oh, she remember. got five dollars to enter and she said she'd give ten dollars uh because of the winnings damn actually yeah no oh, that broke my heart <laughs> but before hey, before we move on i do have to uh ask you there was one theory i saw on reddit where they were basically saying that uh the the ussr had actually infiltrated the american circles uh the american chess circles and they're theorizing that you remember Cleo, right? Uh, no, I don't remember who that is. <laughs> so Cleo, Cleo was the girl that uh, helped her spiral into uh, that kind of final uh, bender night. You remember where she woke up in the bed oh, and then you yeah, know yeah. went on. So they're theorizing that uh, basically she was kind of planted by the Soviets to kind of impair the American chess players, because apparently when Benny went to uh, the USSR to face off against Borgov, that's where he met Cleo. And apparently Cleo spent some time with him because yeah. they did hook up and everything. So maybe there was some kind of foul play there. And then, of course, when she's going to, was it the Paris? The Paris Championships, Cleo was there. And that's what yeah. led to her bender before she faced Borgov the next day and lost. She was, hell, she was in the bed with her that night wow yeah no that's a good point <laughs> that's really interesting do you this do you, is a, is this like a fan theory yeah do you believe it that's certainly some convincing evidence didn't they also say uh i can't remember if they said this in the show if i or if i heard it from somewhere else but like uh if if there, there were like american chess players uh at the ussr 
they would uh probably like tap the phones and like the phone lines see like who they're talking to uh, if they're talking about strategy or anything yep or they would uh like set a radio to go off like in the middle of the night just to like disrupt like their sleep like yeah it, was that mentioned in the show or is that from it was else? it was something touched on i believe by the agent that was sent to uh like as her bodyguard because he was right, like yeah. you know you're not allowed to go out by yourself uh you're not allowed to speak to anyone they might try and talk to you in code don't respond so there mm-hmm. might be a point there maybe they are sending it up yeah no there, i think there's definitely like <laughs> some sketchy uh some sketchy play going on there but i don't know that's really interesting uh i never thought of cleo as like being a what do you think she is like an agent a secret agent i don't know about secret agent but definitely uh kind of a sabotage plant i mean i'm sure mm-hmm. she's getting paid for that right i mean yeah if she is like hired by them like yeah that's she's definitely getting paid it just, <laughs> yeah i just i i wonder uh part of me can see it but another part of me is like why why else would they actually put her in the show i mean what other purpose did she serve other than you know being proud of you know who she was like who uh beth was kind of giving her support then and then obviously you know sabotaging her night before the paris game does she serve any other purpose hmm i guess like she was really only the only other female character that was, uh, I guess, like, in the... She wasn't in the chess scene, but, like, she was amongst the chess people, right? Like, she was friends with Benny and, like, these other grandmasters when uh, they visited Benny's basement apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think, like, for the plot, they probably just... She probably served as just, you know, like, just be, like, another girl that uh beth can relate to like amongst all these men <laughs> yeah but you know that's definitely an interesting uh fan theory yeah i wonder if there's any merit i don't know i think that's something that'll be explored as time goes on eh? yeah maybe if there's like uh i don't know if, do you think they'll make a a sequel series or something like that no 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 way the only the only place that beth is going after the queen's gambit is chess.com as one of the ai you can face oh my god <laughs> have, you, have you played her no have you, but uh... apparently you can face like nine-year-old beth teenage yeah, beth yeah. and then adult beth so maybe, maybe i'll try that after the uh, pod but yeah i know you should give it a go i i can't remember if like i do remember playing against nine-year-old beth <laughs> and uh, i don't know if she beat me or not i don't remember but, i mean uh, I, I i hope you won <laughs> yeah i hope so too <laughs> you, you are what uh 1200 ranked elo that's pretty high i'd say i'm like 1000 <laughs> you know what still you it's a work in progress it, yeah, it's definitely. it's amazing to see this come to fruition uh just for the listeners out there give a bit of context about a year ago, before COVID started, uh, we were hanging out before uh, Chung went over and uh, picked up a new job. He had to move away. And uh, we basically said, we made a pact. We said that in the next year, I would start a podcast and he would start playing more chess. I think it was going to be like, what, two games a day, three games a day or something like that? Yeah, that's right. 
Uh, wow, I can't believe you remember that. <laughs> well, you know what? The funny part is, is we both failed, and now <laughs> the year after, we're at a point where you're playing pretty often, and we've got a freaking podcast. So yeah, let's go. Look at <laughs> it us. Works out. Who would have thought? Not not me. <laughs> hey, we kept our pact. I think that's something uh, to cheers to for sure. Now, I think uh, the next thing we should probably touch on is you're a huge Foo Fighters fan. Yep, I've been a fan uh, since high school. Myself, uh, not so much. It, I, I would say, okay, more more in regards to this. With most bands, I'm more of a you know I think they have you know three or four or five good songs, but I'm not I'm not a huge fan of like a lot of what a band offers. So with the Foo Fighters, you have some pretty good songs. You have like uh, My Hero, Everlong, like those are classics. And they recently came out with a new album, uh, Medicine After Midnight, I believe it's Medicine called. Medicine at Midnight. <laughs> Darn. Medicine oh. at Midnight. Yep. Nine-song nine uh, album. What were your uh, thoughts on it? Uh, I think it was a good album. Like, some of the... Um, they were releasing uh, some songs, like, earlier. I guess to, like, hype up the album. I believe they released... Uh, like two or three songs, not at the same time. They were kind of like, I guess, trying to get people hyped up toward it. Yeah. But uh, overall, I think I, I think it's a good album. I liked, I'd say around half. I really liked around half of the songs, and the other half were like pretty good. <laughs> what were the uh, standout songs to you? Um, definitely, uh, "Holding Poison" was definitely one that stood out to me. It was really good. Um, I like Cloud Spotter. Okay, I uh, love Cloud Spotter. That was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, it's really good, right? It felt it felt classic, and I thought I think it was Waiting on a War that really uh, brought out the uh, vocals more. It felt like you know, kind of uh, really classic in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, so uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on the album? Overall? I thought overall it was. I don't know. I, I I wasn't a huge fan. I thought there were a couple of good songs. Like I said, Cloud Spotter is good. I was a fan on of uh, Waiting on a War, and uh, there's one more. It was I think Love Dies Young. That was pretty good. The rest were like okay, but from what I've seen, at least I was listening to it on uh, Apple Music, and they they have a little starred rating. So they said Making a Fire and Shame Shame were the recommended slash like best songs in the album. And I just really? I, I didn't feel like they were that good. I felt they were more on kind of a experimentational type uh, track. And I think we were uh, going to kind of dive into it. You, you found that it was more of like a popish type album. Kind of had that vibe to it. Um, I'd certainly say compared to their previous, uh, their previous work, for example, um, I guess, uh, what, one of my like favorite albums from them is, uh, Wasting Light. And, uh, that was released, uh, like early 2010s, maybe 2014, or I could be entirely wrong. I'm just guessing, but it's more of, uh, why I would consider more classic foods. Uh, they're, it's more like, uh hard rock, uh, alternative rock, stuff like that. And I got the vibe, uh, comparing that to this new album. Uh, This new album is more, yeah, like you said, more of a pop influence, I guess. 
uh, I certainly got that vibe from uh, Love Dies Young, that song. Yep. But, uh, yeah, no, I, for one, am a fan of, uh, like, bands and artists kind of uh, experimenting with different genres, different styles of music. Yeah, I'm a fan of that. What you, how are you? I honestly, I think I'm more of a fan of kind of sticking with the same. I can certainly uh, respect bands sitting there and trying to experiment a little bit, but overall, I think you just got to go with what works. I think you, I, I, I'm personally someone who believes that, you know, if you, if you don't change, you'll be like, you know, uh, you'll become obsolete, right? But yeah. in the case of uh, music, I, I just think, you know, a little bit of experimentation, maybe a track or two in the album is good. But when it comes to like having the influence over the entire album, I just, I don't fully agree with it. Um, looking back to a couple other bands, like someone like uh, Blink-182, one of my favorite songs by them is uh, one of their newer ones, Dark Side. And it, okay. yeah, I, th- I thought it was fantastic. It was kind of a bit uh, out of left field when it comes to what they normally do, but overall I thought it was really well done and kind of a place where the experimental did work out. But overall, I just, I kind of like, you know, what works, the classic, the you know, staple, right? I mean, I, I listened to a video and it basically discussed kind of the four big uh, pop punk bands of the time. And it was it was Green Day, it was Offspring, and a couple of others. And one of the things that the big four were criticized for and kind of the pop punk uh, genre as a whole was that it was all the same. It had a similar beat, like most of their songs had a similar beat throughout, you know, their entire albums like album after album we're not just talking about within one album and then on top of that it seemed to cover the same topic almost like i I think the way they described it was like i'm in high school i'm pissed off at my parents and i just want to go move away with my friends (laughs) it's when you think about it it's true but that's why i love that music and that's what i listen to it for I don't want to hear about them growing up and, you know, moving on to a new type of uh, style or whatever. I just want to stay in the times, you know, sit there and go hang out with my friends and be PO'd at my parents, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's really interesting. Like, when you say, uh, if anything, I feel like music and just, like, art in general, I feel like is one of those things that needs change. It's really dependent on new ideas uh like new ideas forming from old ideas uh having new ideas completely different from what's been done before i think it's really necessary uh, to have new ideas new ex- uh, experiment stuff like that to really um because like you, you really have to take risks right otherwise you're just kind of stuck in the same place like you said with uh those punk those pop punk bands but overall, I think, uh, like, like you can like what you like, but... Oh, thanks. Uh, Appreciate it. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not going to hate on you or anyone else. He'll, he'll do it after the uh, pod, everyone. Don't worry. Yeah, no, you're right. Once we're off, off the air, uh, <laughs> the gloves are off. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think uh, change is a good thing. It's, uh, I'd say I definitely encourage it for any type of art, especially music. 
I, if we're going to go into the broad spectrum of what's considered art, I mean, we can consider a lot of things art, music, uh, movies, even video games. And if we look at the video game aspect of it, people, you know what, I think people hold the same opinion as you. They, they want to see something new. That's for sure. Like, uh, you know, they sit there and they play Call of Duty and they're like, you know what, I want to see something new, I want to see something new. But then when they sit there and they see this new thing, they shit on it and say, oh, you know, I, I just, I wish we were back at the, you know, World of War days or whatever. Even like Pokemon, it's like, you know, well, you know, I wish, I, I wish it was just like, you know, Gen 1 again or, you know, the first few games, Pokemon Yellow, uh, Pokemon Fire Red. I, I just want it to be back like that. Why, why do we have all this, you know, mega stuff and all these new mechanics? And these are franchises that have built themselves on continuing with the same formula and only changing like 5% of the game between releases. <laughs> so you may say, oh, you know what, with art, I, I, I want to see the change. I want to see something new. But then when the change happens, nobody likes it. Yeah, okay, that's <laughs> a good point. But I, I like to think I'm not one of those people who kind of like shits on uh, stuff that's new. Like, I, I would acknowledge if um, like uh, a franchise or an artist or whatever, if they tried something new and it didn't work, you know, I'd say, you know what? Like, yeah, they, they tried something, uh, they took a risk, you know, that's part of trying something new and it didn't work out. But sometimes like, you have to take that risk so that when it does work out, it's like, this great thing this is a brand new thing I, I think that's really how you make progress in terms of uh i guess art <laughs> it <Yeah>. sounds so pretentious <laughs> but you know that's how that's how you make progress in like anything i think so by that aspect i think one of the most controversial i'm not gonna say one of the most but i think within the uh, I don't want to use outdated words like nerd or geek spear, but uh, if we're going along those lines, let's let's take one of the most uh, controversial things, at least in the last few years, or maybe last decade, with uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. They took a risk. Oh, they, wow. they mixed up the formula. Did you yeah, like no. it? Do you respect it? Okay. <laughs> uh, wow, that's a really good argument. It because is. you know that I'm not a fan of the last Jedi, <laughs> but <laughs> you really got me. Okay, but I, I will I will explain myself. So I agree, <laughs> they went for something different, and uh, I, I like like I said before, I encourage that we should try new things. But I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> like okay, yeah, this is like it, this is one of those times where like. The, the new thing is not what I like. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay. That happens sometimes. But it seems like... Um, oh, man. Oh, am I really going to get into this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Last Jedi. This is the this it, is the side was, shift here. I, I called you out on your bluff. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I don't agree that it's a bluff, but I agree. Like, you totally caught me off guard. Uh, but okay, so the Last Jedi, it was the second movie in the new trilogy, right? Came after uh, the Force Awakens. They were directed by two different people, 
uh, I believe the, the Force Awakens was J.J. Abrams. And I don't remember who directed The Last Jedi. <laughs> uh, Ryan Johnson. But, Ryan Johnson, there you go. So, like, when I was watching The Last Jedi uh, in theaters, I got the impression that, like, they were... It, it was almost like the directors were, like, fighting with each other, almost. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially when, like, this is even more... You oh, yeah. notice it even more if uh, you see uh, The Rise of Skywalker. Like, one example I'll give you is uh, in The Force Awakens, the final shot of the entire movie is uh, Rey uh, finally finds Luke Skywalker, right? She flies to this uh, distant... Uh, nowhere planet that Luke is hiding on. And uh, she finally finds him. And she walks up. Uh, she reaches in her in her bag and she pulls out his lightsaber. And she kind of just like holds it out there for him to take. And the, the, the scene kind of holds on that shot for quite a bit. And then black. That's it. That's the end of the movie. Sorry, just just a little side topic here. He got paid like seven million dollars to stand there for what, like <laughs> half a minute. <laughs> wow. I mean, if you're Mark Hamill, you know you can probably do, you can probably do that kind of stuff. Imagine you like pull your Achilles or something and file for workers' compensation <laughs> after being paid seven million dollars. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways. Yeah, no, that's a. Uh... You get to take a vacation on like this remote island <laughs> and yeah. get paid seven million bucks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so that's like the end of the movie. That's it. That's where this whole movie has been leading up to finding Luke Skywalker and uh, like Ray having Ray being force sensitive, learn from him and, and becoming a Jedi. But then the first scene in the, <laughs> in the last Jedi is. Luke Skywalker taking his lightsaber and just like kind of throwing it over his shoulder. What? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like this is uh, yeah. Like this brings back to the point. It seems like the, the directors were fighting with each other, uh, and uh, <laughs> I'll even say this: like in the Rise of Skywalker, yeah. there was a scene where Ray chucks the same lightsaber into like a fire, and then Ghost Luke appears and he says. That's no way to treat a lightsaber or something along those lines. Jedi's weapon, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that movie was directed by J.J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like one. It seems like Disney just did not have a plan. Like I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you this. Yeah. It seems like they did not have a plan for this new trilogy. It seems like they're just going with whatever, whatever seemed cool at the time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and two, yeah, it seems like the directors are fighting. And, I mean, The Last Jedi, I mean, like, having, with that point alone, seems kind of out of place, I guess, with the rest of the uh, two movies. Yeah. <laughs> so, I agree, like, uh, they did try something. They were definitely, like, they weren't shy with it. They <laughs> they were kind of really going for the idea. Oh, like the Jedi uh, were wrong. Like they're not these uh, these great people that you thought they were. They're kind of 
hypocrites in their ideology. Yeah, no, like that's that's a great take on it. Like, yeah. I I really like that part because it it really, uh, I guess, questions uh, who are these uh, Jedi, these mystical great people who had force force powers, who seem to know everything and are on the good side. Like, yeah, no, it's great that they question that kind of stuff. But I mean. <laughs> It just seemed kind of out of place with the rest of the trilogy. I agree with you, but I'm not going to lie. I think, honestly, The Last Jedi was the best one in the sequel trilogy. I actually think The Last Jedi is probably like my fifth favorite Star Wars movie. Behind, like, I think it could, probably goes like Return of the Jedi, uh, uh, probably a tie between Empire and Revenge of the Sith, A New Hope. And then The Last Jedi. Because you know what? Wow. I felt... I, I, I certainly get your gripes. And first of all, I, I mean, now since you've shared your opinion, you, you obviously respect them trying to take a different route with it, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah, pers- yeah, definitely. I personally appreciate the way they took it just in regards to... Maybe maybe it wasn't set up the best, and I think, you know what, there was a clash between directors, which was really unfortunate, but I appreciated the way the movie portrayed itself and kind of the themes it was hitting, because, don't get me wrong, sitting there for half a movie with, uh, like, Rose just, I, I did not like her character. <laughs> Fucking, Finn was, Finn was going to do something good. Finn was going to take himself out for the good of the rebellion, and mm-hmm. she fucking cock-blocked him. Yeah. And then on top of that, they sit there riding horses, saving horses for like a quarter of the movie. Like literally, yeah, your, no. your friends are there about to get gunned down and you're playing with like fucking My Little Ponies. <laughs> so, you know what? That was bad. The whole your mom jokes like that was too far. But the whole idea of just seeing the transformation of Luke, I, I know people didn't like it because you know what? That's not my Luke. You know, Luke always sees the good. People can change. You can have one traumatic event in your life, and then you become an alcoholic for the rest of it. Shit like that. With Luke, I think the big issue was for 30 years, no one saw him. I, I think canonically and uh, also in real life, right? So we didn't we didn't see the timeline. We didn't see what happened after, what led to that point, other than that one flashback where he tries to you know, take out Kylo, right? But I think the idea that, you know, the Jedi religion is outdated and just reflecting on that and seeing the errors of those ways and kind of uh, seeing just kind of how, you know, someone who always saw the good in people redeemed Darth Vader and took out the Emperor, I guess indirectly, right? Uh, But overall, like, this hero has fallen. And they always show the idea that, you know, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself the villain. I don't think Luke ever became the villain, but he just kind of, you know, reflected on the stuff that, you know, he was taught and saw the errors of the ways. It was a very great-thinking movie. And it also took away the emphasis of, you know, how the huge uh, theme for the first movie was, who are raised parents? And I think for a lot of people, it was, oh, you know, I I really want that callback. I really want to see Rey as, uh, like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi's kid. Maybe it's, you know, Luke's long-lost daughter. Like, you know, hey, that'd be cool. But it's also kind of cliche and just there for the feel-good moment. I think the idea that, 
you don't have to be from this famous family to do something in life is really remarkable. I mean, the idea that she came, they, they emphasize, you know, she came from nothing and look at her now. I think that was like such a great theme because it really shows you like you can go from rock bottom to where she was at that point. Mind you, I think, you know what, throughout the entire movie and throughout the series, she was just a Mary Sue. Like, you know, you, you see Luke in the last trilogy and, you know, he didn't even take on anyone in the first movie. It, it, it took old Ben to sacrifice himself so they could get off the Death Star. And then in the second movie, Darth Vader is toying with him. He, he couldn't do anything. And then finally, the third movie, you see that he's trained himself. You see him go into Jabba's palace and show what he's, you know, that like six months to a year that he was off training with Yoda and everything. And just kind of, you, you see the growth. Whereas with uh, Rey there, she sits there and beats Kylo in the first movie, beats Kylo in the second movie, and whoop-de-doo, almost kills Kylo in the third movie. And of course, <laughs> fucking beats the Emperor. You know, fucking Mace Windu died because he didn't think to use a second lightsaber, of course. <laughs> but it's it just the the idea, and it showed at the end. Like, you, you saw that Luke, Luke changed his mind. Luke realized that, you know what, even though that this, we're going to call it a religion, the religion of Jediism or whatever, even though it's flawed, it's still worth fighting for. And he gave himself up as a sacrifice to show the world that... You know, we can still fight back and everything. And you saw that little kid at the end, fucking, what was he doing? Sweeping the floor? You saw yes. that he, he was a Jedi. Nothing ever happened with that. We could have seen that. We could have seen Luke inspiring people to kind of come together. But instead, I, I know this was a clash between directors, but in the third movie, it was, oh, you know, fuck, we're bringing back Lando. Oh, hey, you want some more Palpatine? Like, they, it was just a flawed trilogy overall, but I just I really like the themes and honestly, the best moment for me, the most chilling moment was when Luke sat there, force projected himself onto, uh, let's just call it fake Hoth, and sat yeah. there and took all those blaster hits. Like that that was so badass when I saw that in theaters. That was the highlight of the trilogy for me. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you on. Pretty much everything you said, I think. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the themes of The Last Jedi were definitely... Uh, they're definitely very thought-provoking. And, I, uh, yeah, I wish they went more into it in, like, the third movie. But, again, I don't think Disney didn't have a plan, so it's just kind of lost. But, um, yeah, no, like, I think it was just... Uh, I agreed with the overall theme. It's just some plot points that just didn't make sense to me. <laughs> like you touched on, uh, uh, who was it? Rose and Finn. They just kind of, uh, uh, like, uh, I have to remind myself. It was the rebel ship. The entire rebel fleet was being chased by <laughs> the first order, right? Yeah, they're they're they gas. Found, yeah, yeah. They found some way to kind of stall for time, where. Uh, the First Order couldn't catch up to them, which, I mean, in itself is kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's never... Like, I didn't know this uh, This was possible in, like, the Star Wars universe. Uh, but, yeah, okay, sure, I'll go with it. But then they have Rose and Finn just kind of... Like, they're able to leave the situation. So, <laughs> it kind of... 
it kind of like makes you think like if they're able to just leave then are they really even like in danger of being caught by the first order i don't know just like small plot points like that really threw me off of the movie yeah but i really but i do agree with you on the major themes uh about the jedi religion and those kinds of ideas so I guess I guess we can kind of come to an agreement on that, where I guess some experimentation is good, but sometimes it might be good to stick to the formula. I mean, I don't think it was an issue that they were going that they weren't following the formula. It's just they just didn't have a plan, okay. <laughs> and like their plot didn't make sense. So, like, if you're gonna try something, like, yeah, sure, you can try it, but. If it's not done well or done right, then I guess you can't, like, you would ex- you would expect some criticism about that. But, I mean, like, t- take out the third movie. Take out The Rise of Skywalker. Let's just take The Force Awakens into The Last Jedi. Is there really a, such a, like, there's a shift in tone, obviously, but it mm-hmm. work, it works as a continuation. The only thing that in reality nothing really got abandoned everything i feel like was accounted for between uh the force awakens into the last jedi was there anything yeah, that was really yeah. missing yeah I, I agree with that um I, I don't think there was uh anything yeah no there wasn't really anything missing i don't not that i remember it's been some time since i've seen the movies yeah. But again, like it's just you, you can try those new things, those new ideas. It'd be interesting to explore them, but like the overall plot just kind of didn't make sense. <laughs> it's just those small things that kind of take you out of the movie. You know? What yeah. I, mean? I just I don't know. Overall, I just I kind of felt it was like a the the clash between. Rise of Skywalker, and then uh, The Last Jedi was kind of like an avant-garde movement, which is misunderstood before its time, like an art piece that you see that doesn't pick up in popularity until like, the artist dies, versus kind of appealing to that fan service in Rise of Skywalker. I mean, they sat there, they completely retconned the idea that, oh, you're from nowhere. No, actually, you're fucking uh, Palpatine's daughter. Oh, hey, we yeah. got Lando here again. And it's just it was so like feel good like you know hey luke's back hey leia's back you know we're, we're training you now like it just took a whole 180 and i i think you you have a point when it comes to the whole you know they didn't have a plan and that's probably why it failed but i think if ryan not if ryan johnson but if jj abrams took control of the entire three movies we would have seen kind of an upsurge in uh fan service and i just i don't i i think a little bit is good but i think they need to do their own thing which is what i think the last jedi was kind of accomplishing yeah no i I agree with that so yeah i wouldn't be opposed to if uh ryan johnson just directed all three movies and uh they kind of went with uh what they're trying to go with in the last jedi for the whole trilogy like i would have been like pretty invested and pretty interested in in that kind of story so yeah i think we can come to an agreement there yeah Uh, you know what overall i mean good and bad right i think (laughs) 
I don't, I don't know about you, but I think my ideal trilogy would have been... Go ahead. You know what? I didn't like The Force Awakens that much just because it, was, it felt like a New Hope ripoff. The only part I really love about it is the fucking uh, BB-8 lighter scene. What a, what a cute little thing. <laughs> Either way, no, that was really well. I think it would have been cool to see Kylo... like Keep keep the same roles, you know, Rey is, you know, light side, Kylo's dark side. But I would almost like to see a shift in The Last Jedi where, you know how Rey sat there and uh, used Force Lightning in the third movie, right? Yeah. What if in their conflict where, like, oh, another thing? I love how they killed off Snoke. I felt like that was so far out of left field and it really did defy expectations. That was another thing I love that a lot of people dislike. But if we almost saw a shift there where Ray kind of, you know, felt the power and, you know, just kind of the trauma of not knowing her parents and feeling abandoned almost turned to the dark side, maybe like kind of midway through the movie. And you see, I don't know, she can like, I don't know, force blast Kylo like off the edge or something. And you see like Kylo fall into a pit. And then you start off the third movie where you have Kylo having flashbacks of killing his father, all the bad things he's done, and almost kind of transitioned himself over to the light side. And then you kind of see him try and take Ray back throughout the movie. I thought that would have been really solid instead of this whole fucking, you know, Palpatine's back, you know, take two lightsabers and, you know, do the job, right? Yeah, no, like, I totally agree. That would have been like already a way better plot uh in my opinion uh i i really would have loved to see um uh maybe in like the force awakens yeah i agree it was kind of like a, a new hope ripoff it would have been really interesting to see ray like go through the jedi training i guess like more of the jedi training it'd be so cool to see her make her own lightsaber come on that would have been like like you have so much material to work (laughs) with so much of it has not been explored like there's an entire extended universe of like comic books and stuff well there there's a scene there's a there's a deleted scene from return of the jedi where you actually see luke building the lightsaber i mean he honestly he's just taking a screwdriver and fixing it but I mean, I, I think I know what you're talking about because, I mean, they at the time where Luke had to build his lightsaber, he had to, like, reverse engineer, like, a bleeded kyber crystal or something to actually do it or something like that. Really? That was yeah. a deleted scene? Uh, I mean, not the kyber crystal part, but, yeah, he was in there. Uh, I can show you after the pod. But for, okay. for the, those in the audience, yeah, Luke sat there and you saw him in the cave before uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO leave and he's finicking around, taking a screwdriver to the lightsaber and I think uh, just making the final adjustments to it. And then you see him, you know, flash the lightsaber and there, there's a little bit of a scene where uh, <laughs> Darth Vader is calling out to Luke and he's like, Luke, 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 <laughs> kind of cringy. So I can kind of see why they deleted it, but it was interesting because I think building the lightsaber, as you touched on, is such an interesting part of the Star Wars world that hasn't really been explored. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's been explored through expanded universe, but not within yeah. the movies. Yeah, like, I feel like they missed that opportunity also, like, in the prequels. Like, when you have Anakin, uh, uh, like, as a very young boy, going uh, on to train as a Jedi, in the next movie, you, like, in the second movie, you just kind of see him already grown up and having having been a padawan 
uh, to Obi-Wan for like some time now. Like it would have been really interesting to see him go through the stages and like really kind of grow as a person and as a Jedi. I think that would have made like his downfall that much more powerful. Yeah. I yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. Overall, I mean, there's a lot of missed opportunities. Disney, if you're listening to this, just hire me as a creative director. We can do this. <laughs> have, have me on. I, I can do the next season of Mandalorian. It'll be good. I can also be a consultant. Yeah. You can just uh, hit me up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can find us on Indeed. Not on Indeed, on uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, overall, uh, it is what it is. I mean, I think they've done a lot better of a job when it came to the Mandalorian. Not my thing, but I just, I loved the finale of season two. I don't know if you saw it, but if you haven't, you're missing out. Yeah, no, I actually haven't seen a single episode of the Mandalorian. You okay with spoilers? No. <laughs> okay, well, shit. All right. Well, you know what? Anyways, uh, I guess we should maybe move on then if I can't spoil it for you disappointing yeah no (laughs) i think there might be a time where i do come around to watch it and when that time comes (laughs) i want to experience it we also gotta watch backstroke of the west and for those who are in the audience who don't know what backstroke of the west is you can find it on youtube it's a very badly translated version of revenge of the sith where they sit there and I think it was translated from like Taiwanese to Chinese back to English. So when Anakin's in there on the river about to, you know, tackle Obi-Wan there, like jump over and slay him, he sits there and says stuff like, you underrated my ability. Or it's it's like (laughs) Obi-Wan saying instead of I have the high ground, it's my geography is vastly superior. It's so (laughs) bad, but it's so funny. That's so good. <laughs> and like it's, it's just kinda gone through two uh iterations of like poor translations. <laughs> it's it's like when you're back in middle school and you're doing Google Translate to get through your French class. The right, teacher right. knows it's not good and you know it's not good. Kinda it's kinda similar <laughs> to the movie. So it would be a good watch one of these days. And Yeah, no, you gotta remind me to to check that out. You guys can all see it on YouTube. Just type in Backstroke of the West. I think it's full movie, and you'll find it. It's it's such a laugh. Just even seeing individual scenes. It's so funny. <laughs> Anyways, going into uh, our notes a little bit here. I know you, uh, you want to touch on automation, interestingly enough. Uh, you want to kind of lead us into that, what you're thinking? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I think... Um, how do I put this? I mean, I think automation in terms of like automated vehicles, uh, whether you agree with them or not, or robots, uh, taking our jobs, (laughs) I think it's honestly, I think it's inevitable to be honest. Uh, I don't know what your opinion is on it, but I think for sure automated vehicles are I don't know how long, maybe five or 10 years. We'll see, like, we'll see them be very, maybe not very common, but maybe we'll start seeing them hit the streets. But I think it's inevitable that they kind of take over I think in it's, terms of uh, human driving. 
I think it's inevitable. I don't think there's any disagreement on that. But I think the huge discussion is just more of an ethical thing. You can, I mean, you can see it in regards to how is the kind of the the vehicle programmed. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, trolley program or not the trolley program, the uh, trolley <laughs> problem, right? Yeah. For those unfamiliar, the trolley problem is basically just you have a trolley going down one set of tracks. There are five construction workers uh, there, and it's destined to hit them. Or if you're you're standing there, and there, there's so many variations of them. Uh, one of them is, weirdly enough, there's a fat man standing on the bridge. You are right behind him, and you could sit there, and you could push the fat man over to basically block the trolley and save the five workers. So it really begs the question, is five lives more worthwhile than one? How do we value the life? Like, you know, maybe the fat man has a cure for cancer. Is it worth <laughs> those five people dying so he can get the cancer cure out? Stuff like that. There are so many things that have been debated. It's, it's a very philosophical question. But that also applies to stuff like self-driving cars. Because in a position where you can either get into a car crash, which would kill the driver, versus killing, let's say, a pedestrian biking, what does the automated response entail? Do you, do you kind of have a perspective on that? Um, I think, hmm, okay, this might be like an unpopular opinion, but <laughs> I feel like, uh, it should be the case where the car would sacrifice the driver's safety, uh, if it meant saving a pedestrian that it was like about to, uh, have a collision with. I think that if uh you the driver you you made the choice to uh get into that car uh assuming like you know full you know full well that this car is like uh self-driving you're okay with it uh that, like just doing everything on its own you don't need to uh take control of it if you're okay with that i think uh like one of the one of the things you should be aware of as you're getting into a car like that, you should be aware that this car is going to prioritize <laughs> like a pedestrian safety over yours. I think that's uh, the best way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, I I would actually agree with that. Now, yeah? wow. Hey, you know what? I think for all those who think the other way, you know, kill the pedestrian. I'd really question your intentions because, I mean, if, you, if you're willing to do that, why the hell don't you just go out, ride a bulldozer, and just run over every pedestrian in the street? <laughs> like, you have a point. If you're getting into that car, you should take responsibility in a way. And I think kind of the bigger, I mean, obviously we could go through this over and over. Like, what if it was five pedestrians? What if there was a family of four in the car? Stuff like that, right? But I, I think maybe the bigger question here besides that is, I mean, if we do have a scenario like this, how does that impact everything else? Because you look at something like the birth of cell phones, just uh, smartphones particularly, and computers, like just 
I mean, hell, we're we're running terabyte hard drives. Or we can, you know, we have optic cables now for internet and everything. Everything is getting obviously as time goes on. Obviously, technology progresses. But the original idea, at least to the best of my knowledge, is the idea that you know when we have these you know automated uh, machines, when we have you know these jumps in technology, it'll be less work for us. But in reality, now we're seeing a time where if you don't respond to an email in ten minutes, it's it's bad. You sh- you should be you know on your phone checking emails for work and stuff like that. It seems like what was supposed to create less work for us really just results in us having to do more and be more like in tune with work and around the clock and everything like that, right? So is automation a good thing for us or is it a bad thing? Like if, if we if we have automated like self-driving cars, I, I would love that because, you know, I could get an extra two hours of sleep if I have to commute. Uh, I don't know about two hours, maybe like an hour, or I could do some schoolwork on the way to school or something. But if we start to use these resources, is it going to be the type of thing where it's like, oh, well, you know what? Hey, you can work in your car on your way to work, get to work, continue to work, and then work on your way home. Is that going to be the result? I think uh, that's definitely a possibility, but you can't. I don't think you can blame that on automation. Like, you really have to. Um, I don't. I don't. I'm not. I don't really know what I'm saying here. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I have to process my thoughts, but um, like you can't. Uh, like, if you have this life-changing uh, technology that benefits. That I, w- I would argue benefits uh, humanity and society. Um, you can't uh, blame that for having to be on your phone all the time answering emails for work. Like, at, when if it comes to that point, it's really you have to start blaming how uh, I guess society operates. <laughs> like, yeah. you, like, there are boundaries where. Uh, if you're off the clock, uh, I guess it depends on your job. But if you're off the clock, say you have a nine to five job, if it's like eight thirty, you're not expected to work at that time. At least you shouldn't be expected to work at that time. You should be expected to work when, whenever you know you agreed with your employer, uh, when you clock in, when you clock out. So I think if you think uh, if that problem ever comes comes to be where we're just always on our phones always working all the time that is really a fundamental problem in how uh how we set boundaries i guess uh for working if you're an employee that's not really a issue with the automation with the technology i think you know what I mean? I think it's not a direct problem with automation, but I think it begs the question of what are the consequences of automation? I mean, it's like right now, I, I have a father who uh, works in the beverage industry and he works uh, with a lot of people around the world and in, he's only clocked in for 40 hours, right? 40 hours a week, uh, gets paid salary. But he probably works 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week, and it 
doesn't make a difference. I mean, he's not getting paid more, but he's expected to hit those deadlines. So even if you do have like a typical nine to five, you're still expected to finish these projects. I have a friend who she, I mean, she works a nine to five, but she probably spends 10 to 12 hours a day doing her work just because she needs to hit those deadlines. And if she doesn't, I mean, even though, you know what, she's still just working the hours that she's there for, it, it'll still probably have negative consequences, right? So I, I do agree with what you're saying in regards to it's not a direct problem of automation, but I do think that we need to think of the consequences of it, if you get what I'm saying, okay. right? Uh, I, I get what you're saying, but it sounds like uh, automation is just revealing the underlying problems that already exist. Like, like completely independent of automation. Okay. Like if say like automation just wasn't in the question, if if um, your if your dad is uh, working six has to work sixty hours a week but only gets paid for forty, that's it seems like an underlying problem with, um, like whoever like is his boss, his manager or supervisor. It seems like they're overworking their workers. Like to me, that seems like the the root of the problem right there. I agree with you, but I mean, like my my whole point here is that it's it's the consequences that have to be accepted. Because I mean, it, it does spark kind of an understanding of the underlying issue. But if we take it elsewhere, like let's say something that we already have, look at social media, something that has brought us together, uh, connected us, you know, made it so. Hell, I, I have cousins down in Finland. Now I can text them and I don't have to, you know, go over to see them. I mean, that, that's more of an extreme example. But one of the direct consequences of having social media now is a lot of the a lot of the FOMO stuff. I mean, I don't know if it's actually a diagnosable. It's not a diagnosable condition right now in the DSM. But right now we're looking at it where it's, you know, if you don't get a text from the person in, you know, two hours it's like oh do they do they not like me i saw that they're active are they mad at me oh they responded with a period at the end uh it's is this them being mad and showing that you know i've done something wrong and that that has a lot of mental health repercussions right so even though it's not a direct result of the technology itself those are still some of the consequences that come along with it which i think need to be factored in the discussion of is this good slash bad because obviously, you know, we could discuss just the direct purpose, but I think we would be, you know, kind of uh, blind to not acknowledge all this other stuff that comes along with it, right? Uh, I guess I see what you're saying. But, <laughs> no, yeah, I agree, like, we definitely have to consider uh, the consequences that come with uh, this new technology that uh, didn't exist before but i mean i feel like those problems are like exist anyway right mm -hmm. i mean i mean i mean maybe this is i think this is just the process of uh how like society just improves and gets better like if you have uh this technology reveal some underlying problem then it kind of puts a spotlight on that problem, right? And instead of like getting pushed under the rug, it's gone a lot more attention. And uh, with that, you just get more, you might get more support 
in terms of trying to solve that problem. So it kind of creates an awareness then is what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so I, I certainly get what you're saying. I think maybe we have different opinions on that then. Um, I guess maybe one of the other points I want to talk about when it comes to automation. I know we're staying a little more away from the technological side of it. Like, you know, I guess we could discuss, you know, like our, our AI going to, you know, take over the world, stuff like that, and, you know, kill humanity, like turn against us, whatever. That, that's been discussed time and time again. I think one of the fundamental aspects that we've also been skipping out on is when it comes to the idea of we might be out of jobs, is that going to take away kind of our purpose in life? Because, I mean, a lot of people, whether they acknowledge it or not, I won't say everyone, because obviously, you know, if you're if you're sitting there working at Walmart eight hours a day, like checking out customers, I, I don't think you take a lot of fulfillment from your job. But if we if we lose jobs and kind of having to put an effort in for our survival, is our quality of life going to go down? What's your stance on that? Um, I would argue, like, if anything, okay, maybe not if anything, but <laughs> the overall progression would be that the quality of life goes up. That, like, that's what I would argue. Like, maybe not if, like, if you, there might be, like, some specific problems uh, here and there, some specific outliers, but I think the overall uh, consequence of having uh, new technology and stuff like that is improving the quality of life. So, but I mean, then you bring up AI <laughs> taking over the world, killing <laughs> humans. I don't know. I actually have no idea if that is plausible or not. Maybe it could be because, like, there's some machine learning stuff that, like, even the programmers, they don't know how it works. <laughs> yeah. Which seems kind of scary, right? It's kind of, like, alive on its own. It just does its own thing, and, like, we don't even know how it does it. <laughs> so that's an interesting point you bring up. But I think if we were in the position where... uh uh, technology was so advanced that everyone just didn't have to work anymore. I think that's an overall improvement. I mean, you you say, uh, do we lose the meaning of life if we don't work? I mean, that seems kind of... Uh, um, it's not really like... I, I would argue no, because, I mean, uh, not to get into like the meaning of, of life and that kind of stuff, but... If you want to do something fulfilling, then, like, if you wanted to, like, paint a picture or write a song or uh, create, like, a mobile app, whatever, if you want to write a book, <laughs> anything like that, like, if anything, the technology frees you up from having to work so that you can pursue those kinds of things. Okay. If you're, like, nowadays, if you're uh, working minimum wage, uh, say you are just trying to like make it through college trying to pay your student debt uh and you're just like working part-time jobs that's really uh like you're not like <laughs> no one's working those part-time jobs because they love those jobs and maybe they are but i would argue like people are working those jobs because they need the money yeah and they yeah so 
like if you wanted to do something fulfilling, it's not uh, the work that like you don't necessarily get it out from work. Is what I'm trying to say. Okay, but the things you touched on is maybe you want to paint a picture or maybe you want to write a song, but the thing that you don't really acknowledge here is there's already been some forms of automation in that regard. We're now getting computer generated music and stuff like that. And we've cut it down to quite a bit of science when it comes, especially when it comes to creating music. We all know like the idea of, you know, people get hyped when this sounds so cringy saying it, but people get hyped when the bass drops. We, we, we've come to acknowledge like, you know, what hypes people up and what people like in music to the point where mu- songs are being artificially created. I mean, you even have, uh, what's, what's the band? Uh, it's, it's for, maybe this is a bad example, but the, the four robots, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my Lord. Um, I'll, I'll figure it out. But the point is, is we're getting to a point where even creative endeavors can become automized. So what happens when they become completely automized? It's not going to be the type of thing where, you know, robots can create these songs, therefore I can't. But if they can do it better, then is there really a lot of meaning to what we're doing? Like I mean, if, 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 if I create a song and it sucks and no one likes it, and I sit there and I see a robot, you know, create the same, a different song and people are going crazy over it. How does that affect your fulfillment? I mean, wouldn't you feel the same way if like, if you create a song and like, no one's really liking it, but then you see uh, this famous artist who's, who's created like uh, this, another hit, like, or are you saying because it's a robot? Like, yeah, I'm saying it's, because uh, it's automation, because okay. it doesn't have that human spirit. Because the song can be broken down into ones and zeros versus your own creative integrity. Hmm, wow, that's a really philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, you're you're more of a casual musician. Uh, you you've made music before. Uh, so I mean, there there's a point there, is there not? How would you feel if you created a song, maybe uh, maybe maybe a couple people like it, but you know you you see someone else or rather some AI make a song and it's it's a hit. How would how would that make you feel? I mean, it wouldn't make me feel too much different if it were just some famous artist that i mean this is i'm talking like personally uh, like someone else might have might feel differently but to me like it doesn't really matter like it doesn't discourage me if that's what uh you're trying if, if that's what you're trying to say it doesn't discourage me like as a songwriter or as an artist if just like a robot <laughs> does better than me, I guess. Okay. Okay. Sure. I, I, like, I think it's a personal opinion. Like I, I'm not, yeah, as you said, like I'm a casual musician. I don't really, uh, 
write too many songs if any <laughs> you wrote a few in your past though right like uh what was it andy's town pool or something <laughs> <laughs> no i wasn't responsible for the songwriting but all right uh, but yeah like i see i see what you're saying all right so uh, i guess you've made a little bit of a point there i guess i, I guess it, you kind of got to relate back to i guess the beth Harmon approach of is it is it for the fame, the fortune, or the love of what you're doing? So, yeah, because I, I I mean there is no uh, defined point in life. In reality, life is pointless. But we create meaning in such different things that we find our own uh, meaning and fulfillment. Right? Yeah, that's so, a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean speaking of that, you kind of have your own life purpose now, Mr. Uh, electrical engineer in training. <laughs> now, <laughs> no, I, funny way one, one of the things we try to keep consistent here on the Graves cast is uh, I, you know what? I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm currently taking a degree in psychology, but you know, I, I, I had that romanticized view of, you know, I'm, I'm going to go get my bachelor's degree, then my master's, then my PhD, and then I'm going to become a therapist. And then I came to understand, you know what? It's kind of depressing. You know what? I I don't know if I have the uh, mental fortitude to kind of listen to people's problems and you know not be Im- impacted by that. I mean, it's it's such a mix between. You really have to create the barrier between a professional and a personal kind of relationship, right? And I don't think I'm someone who can do that. So I'm kind of looking for. I guess other avenues in life and so i kind of want to get a sense of what made you uh want to pursue electrical engineering kind of what your plans are for the future yeah so i mean i'd say uh i mean i first i guess i had a natural curiosity for just tinkering and taking apart uh electronic devices uh like in high school i'd just you know take apart uh my video game controller or even uh, just as simple as like replacing the battery in my cell phone and my smartphone, like that was I found that pretty interesting. Just uh, being able to see uh, kind of uh, what goes into making these kind of consumer products, uh, the circuit boards inside them, all the components, it, it really uh, intrigued me. And um, yeah, I'd say that's definitely what what got me interested in the electrical side um but i i'd like to say uh i got i was really sold on the idea of engineering i'd say like maybe early high school it was um uh, i was first introduced to the idea of uh, engineering uh, from my sister who was uh, at the time doing her undergrad in mechanical engineering Hmm. And, and yeah, so like she kind of uh, introduced the idea to me. It's like this uh, engineering is kind of like this tool that uh, allows us to solve problems and to innovate and to build things. And I, I like I don't know that really appealed to me. That was something that uh, I wanted to do. I wanted to create. I wanted to design. And that seemed like what uh, engineering was about. And I really like the technical aspect of it uh so yeah i'd say that's the reason why i went to engineering in the first place 
it was then it just kind of became the question of uh which kind of like which discipline of engineering and so like yeah with all that uh electronics tinkering and stuff just wanting to learn more formally about uh those like electrical components and uh those kinds of stuff uh then it just became kind of obvious yeah electrical engineering and what do you what do you plan because right now you're what in your third year uh, yep, that's right. and you got what two years to go now at this point uh yeah that's that's actually exactly right two more years all right wow, that's actually so crazy. after those two years what are you doing what, what's your dream job you want to uh go to california california or bust <laughs> cali or bust yeah. yeah no i think um uh i i definitely want to experience uh working for like uh, a big name uh, tech company in california but probably just as like a co-op student uh i i haven't really made my mind if i would want to work there like full time after i graduate but i definitely think the experience of just like working for such a big company a big name company and uh, having all this uh fancy stuff i think <laughs> i think that's definitely something i would want to experience but uh after graduation i think uh, it would be much more i guess fulfilling uh working for like a startup company or maybe even making my own startup i don't even know <laughs> you see you see yourself as like a business owner almost Kind of like a uh, Elon Musk starting as an engineer and becoming a fucking uh, billionaire. <laughs> billionaire, I think billionaire. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not uncommon for uh, engineering students to uh, make their own startup. Like, it's quite common. And I can see myself going down that road. And like, if I'm lucky enough to where to the point where, um, like, my business or my company takes off, then, you, like, what are you gonna do? You just you gotta go with it. I think that's uh, you kind of luck out there. Now, would you have any advice for someone who's looking to pursue something in that field of electrical engineering? Um, it's like are you saying uh, someone who's maybe in high school? And yeah, someone in high school, someone who's in middle school has dreams of going to well, not going to california but just working in the field right like kind of someone who has the same type of drive as you do like what are the steps to kind of achieve what you've achieved so far hmm i'd say uh it's like the big part of uh i guess i didn't mention this but like the big part of uh i touched on this briefly the big part of uh engineering that really appealed to me was uh that aspect of like creating and coming up with solutions to problems uh kind of uh thinking out of the box and having that can-do attitude when it comes <laughs> to uh uh like solving problems so what really got me into that mindset was just watching like um like edu educational youtubers so i don't know if like you've heard of these guys but for example uh there's uh, a guy named mark rober he makes. Uh, he he was a mechanical engineer at NASA, yep. and also at Apple. But now he's like, uh, he's like a full time YouTuber, I think. Okay. And I, uh, he makes like these viral videos. Yeah, you've heard of him, right? I might be wrong. Was he the one who created the uh, 
mo- mobile uh, porta potty? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe he did, and I just don't remember. But it's uh, yeah, it's yeah, pretty, pretty much the dude made like a a car out of a porta potty. Like he was sitting there and. Just imagine your typical, like, I think it was California or something, like, you have your joggers alongside the beach, and then from fucking out of nowhere, out of left field, this fucking porta potty just, like, goes <laughs> right by you. <laughs> Everyone just looks at it like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's a literal shitbox. <laughs> yes, sir. Wow. That's interesting. I've never heard of that. You have to show me that. I'll after. send you the video after. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, this guy, Mark Rober, he, like, he was making uh, YouTube videos for a while, but he really blew up with um, making the anti-theft uh, glitter bomb. Uh, I don't know if you heard of it. <laughs> I, yep, it's I've like, seen those. Love it. Okay, yeah, you've seen those. Yeah, no, like, that blew up all over the internet. Like, it, it, it'd be, like, hard to find someone who doesn't know what that is. You want to explain uh, it for people who don't understand? Yeah, sure. Uh, so essentially, um, uh, there's like, you, I don't know if anyone's experienced it. I haven't personally, but if you order something online, like from Amazon or whatever, uh, the the delivery person would just kind of leave it at your doorstep uh, if you're like not home or something like that. So that kind of uh, gave rise to like porch pri- pirates, as they say. <laughs> yep. <laughs> People who just kind of uh, walk around the neighborhood, uh, look around to see if there's any packages like on people's doorstep, and they would just kind of snatch them and take them home for themselves. And uh, even if you had like video footage of them doing it, the police like couldn't really do much about it. So you feel kind of like powerless, right? Yep. So uh, yeah, so Mark Rober, uh, he, he was experiencing the same thing, and he thought you know what, I'm an engineer, I'm going to fight back. <laughs> so he created this uh, device. It looks like uh, this package of headphones, like really fancy, high-quality, expensive headphones. But inside, it's really uh, this <laughs> like this box of glitter that uh, when you open it, you lift off the top, it kind of just like sprays glitter everywhere. And so it, like it's kind of this way <laughs> to kind of fight back and, you know, punish those people uh at least you know f- uh make them feel like the pain a little bit of like kind of what they're doing yeah and he completely like over engineered the thing he made it so like it's uh uh it has like four phones in it they're all uh, uh when the top of them when the cover lifts off they all start like recording in all four directions so you can see the person's reaction uh he's got um like some fart spray i've that, seen like, the very every yep. like yeah that <laughs> sprays every like oh. uh five minutes or something to try to uh get the person to kind of like throw it away so he can recover it yeah and he even uh like made it to like the phones they'd have uh, uh gps tracking so you could find where exactly the box is and recover it and even uh know when the box has been moved so yeah, he like completely like over-engineered this thing, and it was great. So yeah, like creations like that, like really creative uh, designs and creative solutions to uh, problems, like that's kind of where I got the motivation and uh, kind of got that can-do attitude 
and what kind of wanted me to go into engineering. So like, I guess if you're, if you're in high school and you're not sure if engineering is for you, I'd say my advice would be watch uh, YouTubers like Mark Rober. Uh, another guy is smarter every day who does uh, a lot of educational videos and uh, you can like you learn so much from his videos in terms of uh, like physics technology stuff like that and uh, just uh, everyday stuff so yeah I would encourage you to watch those kinds of educational youtubers uh, if you see if you think uh, uh, if you'd be interested in doing uh, technical work the technical work that goes into making these projects, then uh, I think uh, engineering might be a pathway you should consider. Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, you've made quite the case for it. Does this mean like maybe down the road we could see like a Chung and Sons uh, fucking glitter bomb firm or something? <laughs> New startup? Uh, maybe. I mean, Mark Rober might like sue me <laughs> for taking his idea. <laughs> Well, a, maybe I can start a company with Mark Rober. It's, it's, it's just more of a inspiration, right? Like, uh, and and they do always say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't get sued. Maybe you can t- tell that to his uh, copyright lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to hire your own lawyer, right? So yeah, that's true. I'm sure you can find someone. Now another thing, <laughs> another thing I did want to touch on before we uh, end this off is, you obviously have for for those who don't know, engineering tends to be a very uh, intensive uh, program, and there's obviously a lot of work that goes into it. Mind you, most I'm going to say all university programs have a lot of uh, work that goes into it, obviously. But me myself, uh, I found that throughout my degree, I do have a lot of free time. Like, obviously, you know, there's times for studying, there's time, you know, for exam prep and stuff like that, but I've never felt restricted in, you know, not being able to go to the gym or going out and hanging out with friends or whatever. But for your program, it almost seems like an intense kind of nine to five plus, you know, another four hours after that. So how do you deal with that? Do you want to give kind of a little bit of an overview of what like a typical day would look like for you? Just kind of the busyness that goes along with it? Um, yeah, I mean, do you want me to get into like pre-COVID, like what the average day would be? Or yeah, Sure, just something general, just a little bit of okay. an overview. Um, okay, yeah, so I'm in electrical engineering, uh, third year. Uh, I'd say average day would probably be uh, wake up at like, 7 or 7.30 because there's going to be an 8.30 a.m. class <laughs> or lab or something to go to. <laughs> uh, at least, like, for the program at uh, the school I go to. Uh, it's like that. Uh, and it's, yeah, like you said, it's almost like a 9 to 5. Uh, it's like uh, I'll, I'll have class from 8.30 to, like, 12. Uh, I have, like, then, like, an hour for lunch. Then... Uh, more class from like maybe one to it goes as late as like five thirty when it's really bad <laughs> but uh like if i'm lucky uh i'll get off at like four thirty. Wow. so yeah that's just like class uh in tutorials and labs and stuff like that um I, what i found useful is if like 
some classes are worth going to and some are not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you really have to like prioritize what is worth your time. That is bad advice for the kids. Go to your classes, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't be that great ten who sits there and is like, ah, you know what? Fuck it, I don't need science, I don't need biology, I don't need English. I'm gonna drop out of school and work at Walmart. Making a whole like five hundred dollars yeah. a week. Woohoo. Yeah, no, this isn't good advice if you're in high school. But if you're in university, like you just have, you really have no choice because uh you just have no like they just like schedule you. Uh like the timing is so packed, it's so tight that you kind of have to like take these liberties and kind of decide for yourself like is this class worth going to like could i just read off the slides from the course notes and like pass the exam <laughs> like you kind of have to take that into account but i wouldn't start skipping classes until like like after midterms <laughs> <laughs> to at least know what the class is like but even right? even after uh, your classes, you have a lot of work, right? Like, you you end off at like four thirty, but what do you do after? You don't just get to go home, watch video games, and you know, watch a movie, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish it was like, but uh, yeah, no. Like, I'd probably just go for a bite to eat with friends, uh, just like relax after like a long day, maybe for like an hour or two, and then it's uh, it's in the books, it's <laughs> doing your homework uh doing labs uh it's catching up on on all that course material that didn't make sense to you during class it's yeah it's just it it is a very tough workload uh i can really only speak for like my program it might be uh, a lighter workload for if you're in uh like mechanical engineering or mechatronics some other discipline or another program but it could also be a heavier workload. I can't really speak for them. But yeah, <laughs> electric engineering. Uh, there's uh, if you're interested in it, just be warned that there's a ton of math. There's a ton of calculus. So if you like calculus, it's like pretty interesting. But I mean, if you really hated it in high school or even like first year, then maybe <laughs> you should consider switching. Uh, programs just because there's so much of it so after you finish with your class like let's say eight hours a day for classwork how much time do you spend after class on just homework and stuff like that on average um let's see i'd probably work until dinner which is like seven so maybe so from like 4 30 uh maybe get a bite Start working at five thirty, work till seven. So that's like what an hour and a half, and then from dinner, so like from eight to maybe ten, it would be more homework. <laughs> uh, it sounds really depressing. I mean, some some nights it might be ch- kind of chill. Like maybe there's not much to catch up on. Maybe there's no uh, assignments that are due soon. But like the busiest days, yeah, it'd be it'd be that bad. Like an extra. Maybe like four, almost five hours after class. <laughs> so you're looking at like 12-hour days in that regard, right? Yeah, that'd be fair. I mean, it's also, you have to, I guess, take it with a grain of salt. It's That's just like my work ethic. It's just kind of what helps me uh, like succeed. It helps me pass those exams, those midterms, those tests. You could be like just built different. <laughs> you could 
just uh you could be skipping all your classes you could uh just be doing the bare minimum like just handing in those mandatory assignments but you could still be like probably doing better than me <laughs> if you're just that uh if you're just built different like that so what do you feel like the trade-off is then because obviously i have a vastly different experience from you in in my experiences it's maybe three four hours of class on a couple days of the week then a couple days it's like two hours uh maybe maybe two two and a half hours and for my entire degree i've always had fridays off and then maybe outside (laughs) of class like the average week might be like six hours eight hours of work outside of class it was never a lot i don't even i don't even think i hit 10 hours outside of class on the average week so i had a lot more free time this isn't to make you feel jealous and to the audience it's just diversity of experience but do you feel like that trade-off is worth it do you feel like you know the foundation that you're getting the degree like degree wise do you feel like that sacrifice is worth it when it comes to like let's say your social life or pursuing hobbies or do you feel like you would prefer more of like kind of that work-life balance i guess essentially what i'm asking is is it worth it to you know have to put in all that effort to then eventually get the degree and then you know you, you get into the working world right yeah no that's that's a good point um i think if you uh, really enjoy the material. If you really enjoy like uh, the stuff you learn in class, then it's not so bad. Uh, like personally, uh, I mean, I, I enjoy most of the classes. Like every now and then, there's that waste class that you know <laughs> no one really takes seriously. You kind of just do the bare minimum. But uh, like if if you're really interested in the topic and uh, what's being done in class and in labs, then it's definitely easier to devote more time it's easier to uh make that trade-off if um uh, trading off like uh socializing time stuff like that but i mean uh if you ask someone else like it might be a completely different story it might be just like too much of a workload for them and it might be too much of a time commitment that like they're just losing their mind (laughs) <laughs> so it's really just uh <laughs> it's yeah no it's really just finding what works for you if you really like the program then and you're willing to like stick uh all, like all that time and all that effort into getting that degree then yeah maybe it's worth it if you really want to like become the next like bill gates i uh, mean that's a bad example because he dropped out of college right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if you want to be the next elon musk <laughs> yeah if you want to be the next elon musk or like the next uh innovator or something like that then like maybe that you could argue that's just the price to pay uh to to do that are you but are you satisfied with that because i mean we could go back to the whole like beth Harmon thing it in a way maybe it could be perceived as self-destruction in the pursuit of genius right yeah that's definitely a theme that you can connect so yeah i would always like if you're down to like just grind and have no social life you just have to you still have to find that balance like even if you're putting in all those hours like you still have to take care of yourself uh mentally and physically uh getting it you have to make sure you're getting enough sleep you're eating not horribly (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh yeah like if you're sacrificing your mental state i guess maybe it's an indication to that you should take a break you know you can always uh i mean i don't know if it might be different from school to school but i would encourage you to like take a break um kind of uh give yourself time for like self-care and just catching up with yourself because school can be so uh demanding but uh if it's if you if it feels like you can't be doing this for like the next like four years or however long your <laughs> degree is or even like depending on what the job is like uh, if you can't be you can't see yourself doing this for like the next like the rest of your life then maybe it's like maybe you should consider like switching or looking into a different program or something like that, different career path. Yeah, definitely uh, help someone out with that as well. Uh, she was in engineering and she felt so much stress from it. It was really uh, affecting her mental state. So she actually switched over to law and she literally, it, it was astounding. From one semester I saw her, she was horribly uh, kind of unsatisfied with her school and life and everything. And, you know, all, every time I saw her, she was exhausted. But then she switched programs and the next semester, she was the happiest I'd ever seen her. She was upbeat, she was loving life. So it really comes down to personal choice, right? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, I mean, people like, if you're in high school, like I'm sure you hear maybe from your parents or from teachers or whatever, you hear like, oh, you got to figure it all out. You got to know, do you know what you're doing Gosh. for the rest of your life? <laughs> do you know what you're going to university or college for? Or, or do you know what your, what job you're going to do yeah, right after high school? You're 16, like, but you have to plan out the next 80 years. Yeah. Like, oh man, that's just <laughs> totally bizarre to me. Uh, yeah. Like you shouldn't, <laughs> it's, it's such a high expectation to have oh, of yeah. someone who's only like a quarter of their life in maybe even less, right? I mean, so, th think of the maturity difference of someone who's like getting out of high school at, I don't know, 17 and being like 21 or something or 22. You just have such a different perception of life at that point. Yeah, it's true. Like, that's definitely, uh, like, for at least for me, it's definitely that time period from 16 to like uh, where I am now, which is like going on to 21. That's like uh, probably the most, I guess, formative years. <laughs> I mean, like, I really changed as a person uh, <laughs> like, in those, in that five-year span. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, like, I think at that age, like, it's it's really that age where you should be experimenting and trying new things and seeing what works, what doesn't, seeing what you like, what you don't like. Like, th th this is the time where it's okay to fail because yeah. you have so much time ahead of you so yeah no if, if you're getting pressured from like family or even friends uh from teachers like just i guess don't let it get you uh like, it, like <laughs> easier said yeah, no, than done yeah course. okay that's true that's definitely true but uh i mean it's i mean they're not living your life right so you yeah. you ultimately have to take that uh step and kind of take control of uh, of what you want to do and if you don't know that's fine but you gotta try to find out i guess and but i mean there's no rush 
in the end you're in this world for yourself and you gotta do what's best for you find out uh really what works for you don't let anyone uh tell you differently so i think that's uh probably a good place to wrap it up thank you for coming on the podcast i honestly think that was very insightful when it came to what you've spoke about when it comes to your experiences uh tips for other people because obviously everyone's experiences will vary and i think you know with the amount of pressure you have in your program and you know finding the balance that only you can find within yourself is kind of inspirational in a way so I th- it was really good to get your story out uh do you have any yeah, yeah. Kind of for having me. closing comments uh before you leave um yeah i just i mean i don't really i think i expressed uh <laughs> <laughs> all my points there uh yeah no just uh thanks for having me on the podcast uh it's been fun so uh, it's my first time recording a podcast so this is a pretty interesting uh, new experience and it was pretty good it's my second time so we're all learning this together <laughs> uh do you have anything you'd all like right. to shout out or anything you'd like to uh plug before you go <laughs> oh man uh <laughs> oh, wow i'm really not used to this i don't really have anything to be honest i mean just keep doing you i guess <laughs> all right well thank you very much for joining us uh thanks everyone for listening we will be up on spotify uh itunes and every other podcasting format uh to play later on probably in a few days so uh, if you want to watch the replay of that or you you don't watch on twitch uh watch out for that uh as always we stream this every other friday at 8 p.m on twitch.tv slash nfgraves so if you want to listen live feel free to come by and ask questions in the chat if you have any questions for our guest and outside of that, uh, you do have the option to leave voicemails, which we might begin to incorporate if you go to anchor.fm slash gravescast. So maybe we'll see a bit of those next time. Uh, in a couple weeks, we have a someone from the game industry actually coming in who's worked for Ubisoft. So there'll be yeah. some interesting conversations there. And I feel like a lot of people will be interested in kind of getting a sense of what the game industry is like from the inside and kind of what the path is to there. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you all for popping by and we will catch everyone later. Thanks for watching guys. Bye.